are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, this episode features myself and Angelique, and we chat with prolific actor Andrew Divoff about Wishmaster, beer, the Wayans brothers, immigrating to the United States, and much more. Now, also, folks, you can visit Mr. Divoff himself. He has a brewing company. It's called the Three Marm Brewing Company, and that's in Crestline, California. And if you tell him that we sent you, he'll pour you a free pint. For all you Night Demon fans out there, that's about two hours or so from Ventura. So how about you go have a drink on us? Also included in the link to this episode and posted on our website will be a photo of Mr. Divoff's friend Ryan, whom he mentions during the episode. And that picture contains a QR code to donate to Ryan's cancer funds. And that's the cause we can certainly all get behind. So if you can afford it, please throw Ryan a few bucks. Anyway, without further ado, folks, here you go. You're listening to the Monsters Madness and Magic podcast. You fools, now prepare your wishes. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> so, Andrew, we don't do anything fancy here. We're already off and away. I guess just so we have a platform here. Take us back in time to when you were a youngster. What were you into? Were you a fort builder, troublemaker? Definitely all, all of the above. I was uh, so I, I was born in Venezuela, uh, in a in a little place called Santome, Venezuela, which was near uh, some oil fields. My father uh, father was Russian. Mom was Irish, and so you can imagine I uh, have no sense of humor. I don't like poetry, and uh, and I uh, I don't get angry. <laughs> oh shit. So uh, came to the states at ten, and uh, and my uh, my life down there was kind of trippy, man. It was uh, I did build forts mostly out of necessity as a kid. Uh, I was the uh, so so at that time there was a uh, sort of a derogatory term for uh, foreigners, which I was. And interesting, I was a foreigner there, an alien, if you will, and uh, and then an alien when I came up to the states at ten. But I would build forts. I would pretty much on a daily basis get my ass kicked by the kids in the neighborhood. I was an outdoor kid. I, I figured, you know, a little bit of a beating is worth, you know, skating. We would, our favorite thing to do, believe it or not, because it was, imagine it was so damn wild. When it would rain, we would get some monsoon rains and the streets would fill up four, five, six inches of rain. The kids would all put their skates on and we'd hide in bushes and wait for cars to go by. They were going slowly. And so we would literally skate ski behind a car, we grab a bumper and hide out of the way of the, uh, of, of the uh, rear view mirror and go for, you know, half a mile and, and, and just flip out and into the water. It was, a, it was really quite a, quite a blast. And so, yeah, so, so growing up, my, remember my influences were the quiet American influence, Gary Cooper, 
the heroes uh, of Vic Morrow on combat. Uh, I mean, combat was a constant. Not a whole lot of television. And then really not until I got to the States at 10 years old did I experience horror. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, I was I was lucky enough, uh, uh, you know, we had a TV set, we had the uh, rabbit antennas and we had fairly good reception. But I always knew where I was up in uh, NorCal. There was a there was Channel 20, which would show uh, risque movies like La Dolce Vita. Man, I, I got memory, but we won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> but there, there was uh, there was horror as well. And I and I, uh, I remember my my mom freak out if she caught me. You know, reading anything about horror or, or watching any horror, she just thought, you know, all in good time. Say when you're 21, 22 years old, you should be able to handle that sort of thing. <laughs> well, I kind of said, fiak that. And I uh, I would, uh, about two in the morning, there'd always be a movie on. And I would uh, sneak up and I my first really, really big memory was Boris Karloff. And of course, Frankenstein totally blew my mind and then i had to i had to get to know the other monsters wolfman and uh, and I, I again i had to sneak my fix i think my mom probably knew you know but uh, but it was it was nevertheless it was so cool being out there in the living room with the one television in the home and the black and white and watching that like oh wow yeah that made a big impression so how was that initial move for you as a kid when you moved from uh, the south america to the states was it hard for you you know, as I look back, I will say no. But if, as an adult, if I sort of dissect the uh, the move and and sort of the subsequent sort of my relationship with my community and and, and people who were to become friends, who at that time, uh, so I had a nickname. It was tough. It was tough. So I came up to the states. Apparently, I had a really uh, a very pronounced accent, Latin American accent, speaking English. Uh, uh, my my neighbor, for instance, told me who uh, used to babysit my younger sister and I. He he would tell me, "Yeah, man, you uh, you sounded like right off the boat," is the way he put it. And he said, uh, "You would call me Mister Dick." And uh, and so his name was Richard Dick. I I, I had a uh, I remember an interview with the principal of, of the school I was to attend, and uh, I would have gone, having finished third grade, the equivalent of that in, in Venezuela, I would have gone into uh, fourth grade, and uh, based on a 10-minute conversation with the principal of the school, he decided I should I should repeat the third grade. And so I was I was put back a grade, and that stigmatized me as a kid, and, uh, and it was all because of the accent and the languages. And so I, uh, that is my one sort of ember, my flame, that sort of informed uh, the fact that I now speak eight languages quite fluently. I often will, will go to the countries uh, of those languages and, and pass as a local. And so it uh, it was something that uh, that uh, as a kid I obsessed on absolutely. What was the first language that you learned after Spanish and English? Uh, so uh, first one after that was French, mm. and uh, and then uh, my interestingly enough in in high school my French teacher kept saying to me you know with your last name you should be learning Russian and I thought yeah, uh, uh, so so my my folks divorced when I was quite young. Ah, oh, that's did I did I mention how how damn smooth and good that I, I mentioned it right <laughs> right yes right. of course looks delicious um, thank you uh yeah so so uh after after the uh the french and uh, and thinking about you know my parents were divorced at, uh, at when i was five and so anything russian i wanted nothing to do with and so i didn't actually learn russian until at university later at university i uh my mom was in the foreign service department of state and uh, and we in 1973 we moved to uh, uh, Spain 
first to uh, Rota, uh, where there, uh, there's a there's a uh, navy base nearby, and that was uh, it was beautiful being in in that area in, in Andalusia and Cadiz and in uh, Sevilla, and then from there we went to uh, Barcelona, which. To this day, I, I love that city. I love those people. I speak Catalan. And I just, I, I am, if, if you've never been to Barcelona, if you ever have a chance, grab it. It's uh, such a wonderful life experience to go there, experience the people, the architecture, the vibe, the food, and, and the layout, the landscape. Nothing, uh, nothing bad to say about all of that. <laughs> and so from there, I uh, transferred from the University of Barcelona. I transferred through the American College of Barcelona at that time. I transferred my credits to Georgetown University, where my major was Russian, Russian area studies and a minor in linguistics. I will, I will just sort of leapfrog ahead. My father was always convinced that, uh, that I was going to be a professor of linguistics. Uh, and uh, I was, in the back of my mind, convinced that I would not be. Nevertheless, I was attending school, and it was uh, it was something. And then and the plain truth of it is, is that I love language. I love the speaking of it. The the sort of putting it on a uh, on an operating table and taking it apart with equations was just not something I was into, and and really something I couldn't hack. So I uh, I left Georgetown, and I'm I'm still on my hiatus, my sabbatical. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see if I ever amend that. You still got plenty of time. So, where along this path, this journey, do you do the, Does the uh, interest in the arts arise? When do you start thinking about maybe trying acting out? I, I, I think I've uh, I've always, even as a kid, always been a very uh, very creative person. My father was, uh, and mother as well. She was uh, more watercolors. My father was a uh, was a painter in oils. I wish I could do the watercolors, not so well, but oils, I'm 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 good, and I sculpt. And so, as a kid, it was. Uh, uh, you know, being able, having a, an imagination and being able to sort of translate that onto paper or into a sculpture was important and took up time and your your imaginary friends and, and the things and, and the sort of cool life that you lead all has to do with the things that you create. And so I uh, I very much was uh, was in tune with my, my need to create. Always a very shy kid, very introverted. I just knew that there was something inside that uh, needed to be expressed. I didn't know whether I would have the courage to to express it. I was not good at show and tell in school. I would freak the fiac out. I really, really would before that. I guess I've overcome it a bit. I'm still, I'm still quite shy. Sometimes you might say introverted about things, but uh, you put me on a set, give me a good script, I'll tear that shot up. <laughs> So how did that first professional gig come along for you? Let's see. So I remember it was uh, a show, a TV show, really called 30-something, although Neon Maniacs had come much before that. I was standing there. They came to me and said, hey, because I was an extra, they said, for all practical purposes, I was an extra in the movie as well, Doc. But uh, but they said, yeah, we're, we're going to make you Doc. Are you cool with that? And I said, hell yeah, man. That means I'm, I'm here for other days. They... They still owe me the six hundred dollars for that movie, <laughs> but, uh, but that was my sort of first foray on on film, and then sort of my first big role. I drove a limousine for a while. I, I was lucky enough when I was at Georgetown University. One of my uh, one of my housemates there, Eustace Wolfington the third, his uh, his uncle was basically gave me a chance uh, when I came out west. From the East Coast, it coincided with my father's retirement. Uh, who uh, still was believing I'd be a professor of linguistics, you know, thinking it. I'm just coming out for a break. Well, my father got uh, got a, a condo in Malibu, and I'm thinking, let me uh, help you move in, man. You know, 
me help you bring your stuff in. Of course, I never touched a, a box or a piece of furniture, but crashed out on the couch several times. It was uh, right across the road from uh, where they filmed the uh, the Rockford Files, oh. uh, Point uh, Point Doom there in uh, Malibu. And so uh, I was kind of a couch surfer for, uh, for a little bit. And uh, and then this thing uh, came up. I was driving a limousine and, and a, a job came up for a limo driver. And uh, my agent let me know about it, but uh, told me that they're not going to see you. They, they won't, they don't, they've never seen any of my clients. It was a small, small agency. And I said, okay, all right. So I drove there. It was on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. I drove there and it was a, the role was of a, a Russian a speaking limo driver, Russian accented. So I went in with a card, handed them a card, and I did my my Russian accent. And they were like, "Oh my God, well fuck, it, this is perfect." And and I kept, I didn't break the Russian accent until we were done filming. And then I I, I gave cards out as thank you cards, and you know, in my normal voice. And people were like, they, they, some of them were, were like freaked and didn't say anything, and <laughs> might have been a little, you know, pissed off. And others were like, "You fucker." <laughs> Oh, man. You know, so they, they felt like uh, I pulled the wool over, but it got me the job. And that was important. And that, that was that was important to know that uh, there's always a way in. You know, right. there's always a, a persistence is what uh, is the key is what matters. Yeah. So, Andrew, you mentioned you speak eight languages. Have you ever been in a situation to where maybe you're not expected to know the language of which you Absolutely. are and you've heard something maybe you <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And then of course I wait for the right moment, that little that little sort of uh that nanosecond of of when they have to take a breath and I'll throw out a word and oh that freaks the fiac out of them. That does, man. It, uh, and I I on more than one occasion I've I've piped up. But I, I wait uh I wait for the, you know, how, how would I put it? I, I, you know, the frog at first is in that warm water. It mm. feels, you know, it's great. It's kind of like a little, and then, then it gets hot. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, I, I, man, I love the, the looks of it. It is. And, and so a lot of times I've made more friends that way than, than enemies actually, hmm. because I'll do it in a, uh, in a you know, very sort of a jovial way. And I'll, I'll say to him, I said, you didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> I said, you got to watch out, man. You know, you can't you can't judge a book. <laughs> That's hilarious. So uh, one of my earliest experiences with your work uh, was a low-down, dirty shame. I've always oh, been, a, very, been a huge fan cool. of the Wayans Brothers. So Me what too. was that set like for you? Was it just a fun people to be around? Oh, that was absolutely, absolutely wonderful, man. It was uh, Burton Richardson was my double on that. And he is a quite an accomplished a fighter has done MMA, and we're talking a while ago now, before before the craze, before it was sort of organized, if you will. And uh, he was a uh, he was truly, and I imagine still is. We uh, we communicate, we say hello every now and then. Uh, a badass Muay Thai fighter. I trained with him to to get the moves down, and and one of the most beautiful things that I could possibly hear from a from a fellow actor being Keenan in this in this particular circumstance. It was after we, we did the first sort of training and I blocked and I and we were fighting and I threw a couple of punches. He he, he put his arm, arms up like that and he turned to his stunt coordinator, his own, the guy running the show and he said, This motherfucker's fast. And I, I love that. I'll never forget that. That was a that was a such a beautiful compliment. It was wonderful to see him in his really first big directorial debut uh bringing jada pinkett in making her a star right. uh you know rock we had we had uh rock there the original rock 
uh, ROC. Yeah, it was it was a wonderful cast, a, a wonderful, uh, really just a, a wonderful character. I, I totally, totally enjoyed. And I, I believe I'm I'm remembering the, the name Vanessa Johnson. I believe it was. I'm not sure if I'm getting the first name correct. Forgive my, I mean, but she was the leading lady. Uh, his love interest was absolutely wonderful. So I, I got uh, I got great memories from that and and it just it it was just so cool and you'd be surprised how many people come up to me at conventions and so forth and they'll they'll hold up a hand and go how many fingers (laughs) you know (laughs) so that's kind of kind of a nice throwback (laughs) obviously it's probably the wishmaster that most people come up for you at conventions for yeah you know uh, uh, wishmaster uh, another 48 hours gets uh, gets a lot of love as does uh, toy soldiers uh, and so, uh, so those three. But but the really cool thing is until until really five years into the circuit, because I wasn't, you know, I, I I I don't suppose I would mind blowing my my own horn. That sounds that sounds uh, uh, how would I put it? That sounds like uh, like gymnastics. We don't want to talk about. But but what I mean by that is is I'm I'm as I say I'm fairly shy. So so uh, I'm not one to say. Well, you know, the guy in Toy Soldiers is also the guy in Lost, and uh, but I would let people sort of make that realization for themselves as they as they walk, and a lot of them, you know, they'll look at the table, they'll look at all the pictures, they'll, they'll give a sort of a weird gesture, and they'll look at me and they'll say, "That's you, oh, dude." Yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not watching the table, babysitting it for somebody. That, that all that is. Yep, that's actually me. But so uh, I'm I'm proudest of the fact that uh, that the characters that I've played that that from one to another you would you would never make the link uh, you, you'd never make that connection and that that's a wonderful compliment for an actor not so much for an agent <laughs> uh, sticking on Wishmaster for a second just between those two films you got uh, Robert England Ted Raimi Angus Grimm Kane Hodder Tony Todd I'm probably forgetting Reggie, somebody Reggie Bannister yeah, yeah 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 giants of the genre basically and uh, Joe Pilato mm-hmm. uh, you know friends uh, rest in peace Joe uh, friends and and Angus um, definitely friends and uh, you know uh, uh, Reggie is just literally down the road from the brewery wow and he's hanging in there uh, Gigi uh, Gigi's doing well as well we're going to be doing we have a little uh, thing called Jamboree Days coming up here in Crestline and by all means come up uh, uh, if you get a chance uh, um, so July 2nd we're going to do a parade and it'll end with uh, fireworks uh, that evening um, so if, uh, if you're able to come on up and visit us. Did I mention I know where you can find beer? I mentioned that, right? <laughs> said that about the beer. I heard it's pretty good. Damn good. <laughs> With Wishmaster, you know, the, the character has such a distinctive voice, and knowing now your linguistic background, what informed uh, the Jin's voice? Uh, how did you come about that particular you know, raspy? That a, yeah, that, that, that was well done. That was uh, that was uh, tricky. That was tricky. It was, um, and because of the accents that I do, believe me, uh, Robert Kurtzman and I really, I mean, we labored over where would the voice come from, and and by that uh, sort of metaphorically, and and for me, this being, I mean, you know, where he not wished out of a lamp would would show up in a dirt devil in the desert and just show up and be there. That's that's how the jinn travel from from there sort of limbo world into ours, at least in my in my imagination. So it had to have an earthy, very gurgly voice to it. And we talked a bit about uh, making it a, a, a British accent, but I didn't want to go whole hog into that. 
although on some of the the uh, pronunciations i i do uh, sort of push that but it was it was really sort of thinking about that and a wonderful sort of a little happenstance the first night that we filmed in wishmaster kit gear if you will we also we we uh, our truck our camera truck was stolen and so i i noticed everybody was standing around a television uh in a uh, in a building that was that was next door to where we were filming and they were showing literally they they were showing a helicopter following this white truck down the highway and we're thinking and and so Robert reached out to the to the studio and said, "Hey, we need, we need another truck." So that that was a trippy little thing. And so for that time, he said, "said Andrew, why don't you, having had the makeup put on, why don't you go and sit in your trailer in the dark and just work with the voice?" And and uh, and another sort of happy coincidence was that uh, I had uh, eaten some candy, some jelly beans, just to sort of stay up, and had not cleared my throat just to just to give it an extra bit of gurgliness, right? And so I noticed as I was sitting in front of the mirror I was almost doing almost like uh I don't know almost like chance and I I remember sitting in front there barely seeing and and incidentally Peter Atkins was kind enough it was that moment there there was a line that I added to the speech that ends in I am despair well there was a moment in there where I added a thing that said I am the shadowed face that stares back at you from the mirror and so uh and at that moment I was I was doing that grumbling and chanting and all of that and it uh I came out of there as the gym which was really really cool and 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 my favorite my favorite scene and quote is with Buck Flowers whom we we didn't mention yes. but, uh, but when he says well he should he should only get cancer and die I think he says and uh, mm. and uh, and so so I say all right and then then he looks up and sees who he's made this deal with and and that's one of my my favorite lines rat insect ram until those you will what you will tell them there is something new in the city something which feeds on shells but tell them quickly while you still have a soul bravo <laughs> you still got it Thank you, brother. Thank you. And, and you know that's without jelly beans and a and a milkshake. I'll tell you what. If I had those two things, it'd be it'd be about a thousand feet below below the surface. Oh. Just thinking of the poor PA that had to come fetch you in the dark in full makeup and they're whispering like a gin to yourself. <laughs> be you know, uh, they, I would I would. So I had this RC motor on the back that would articulate the uh, tentacles for the first uh, first get up. Oh, neat! And so I could never sit down, and, and so they had a they had literally a plywood board sort of at a at a plumb angle, and uh, and I would literally walk up to it and just kind of. Lean back like like a monster in his box, and, and I would just be I would just be looking out, and I, I can't tell you how many times the PAs would walk by and they'd look at me and they go, "Hey, are you all right, man? Are you you okay? You need anything?" And I would just go, uh, and they just scurry off. Oh, that's great. It would keep me uh, it would keep me in the mood for the filming uh, to come. So that was uh, that they they were unwitting sort of uh, participants collaborators. <laughs> the, uh, the end product. How long did it take you to get all that makeup on? Uh, first time was some four hours plus. We whittled that down to uh, two and three quarters, and depending on whether we would use the full garb or not, sometimes we knew that the day would consist of 
what we call cowboys, which is a, a frame that, that stops it where the guns are and a cowboy. That's what that's what brought that about. That's uh, that's that's you know from the waist to the top of the head and and closer. And so it wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, necessitate all of that gear, which probably was about uh, goodness a good fifty to sixty pounds worth of stuff Oof. that was that was uh, that I was carrying around. This is sort of maybe not so much recently, but prior to the prominent age of the internet, there was some mix up between Robert Kurtzman and Wes Craven in the involvement. Obviously, Kurtzman directed it, but what was what was that there? So, uh, Wes Craven uh, put his name to the piece, uh, was, a, was a friend, Robert was a big admirer of his, and reached out, I think, smartly to sort of help establish this new monster and uh, give it a, a bona fides, you know. So here, this is real. Wes Craven's name is on it. And he was a gentleman, a very quiet gentleman, very intellectual human, as we know, a professor of, and I believe it was of ancient histories and of, of English. I believe that was his uh, his uh, sort of discipline. But he was uh, he was very quiet and a real uh, real gentleman on the set. I I, uh, I remember taking a picture with him. I still have it, thankfully, and uh, I'm ever grateful for the fact that he did sign on. And I had heard some some rude comments from other. Uh, other uh, producers, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, studio heads, I shan't mention any names, but if I could remember them, I would. Um, <laughs> anyway, you, you know who they are. And one of the monsters shared that, that comment with me, and I, I've never forgotten it. But uh, if, if this, might, this might sort of triangulate and narrow the choices down. They got, the brothers got what was coming to them. Ah, okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to think on this one later. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> uh, obviously, before Kurtzman directed, he was already a legendary effects master. So was he more conscious of working with heavy makeup and effects more so than other experiences you've had? Absolutely. And, and, and mind you, this would have been prior to this. My experience with masks was, was really a cowl that was glued in at the eyes and around the mouth and makeup uh, uh, put in uh, Joe Podnar. That would, that would have been Oblivion 1 and 2. That was a cowl that was pulled over the head. And previous, uh, previously, it would have been, uh, it would have been the, the makeup in, uh, in uh, Neon Maniacs, which, you know, uh, on its own is, is really quite amazing makeup. And really all it was is, is, is what spreading a bit of glue for Neon Maniacs and then coming in with tissue paper and literally applying the tissue paper everywhere and then scratching it and then making it up to look like like uh, dead skin, peeling skin, and uh, really quite a wonderful, simple effect that uh, all you kids at home can try for Halloween. <laughs> Obviously, we transitioned to Wishmaster 2. You've gone from Kurtzman to Jack Shoulder. What's the uh, difference there directing-wise? I, I think it brought out a, a much more evil delight in in twisting the the, the wishes uh, i mean almost this this absolute joy in others pain and and it it's it, it's it's a bit of a constant a good constant i think in jack's work and in his writing and so that was uh, and and i think uh, a little more of that oh goodness uh, uh just enjoying the trick was brought out whereas and i still my my love is is for number one and for robert and crew can be uh kurtzman nicotero and Berger because of the fact that they were breaking ice they were breaking new ground and uh, and, and made something notwithstanding my participation which i consider to be iconic going into the going into the second one was this more more of a celebration of cruelty 
of, of, of Jin's absolute joy in others' pain. It was fun to work with Jack. We actually, whereas uh, um, I had been to I had been to the Brussels Film Festival for the first issue. Robert was not there; didn't get to go. But uh, but Jack was there for the second, and I and I remember that fondly. And it, it, it was just it was just so wonderful to see that first of all that Jack appreciated the monster enough to give him the specials and give him the the sort of uh, attention to to personality that that he deserved. Uh, I felt uh, subsequently that that sort of love and attention and and taking it to the next level fell short in in what was to come in in what I was uh, negotiating to be number three. Come to find out that the budget for number three was going to be used for three and four to be shot at the same time. And that uh, I'm sorry, but that's a recipe for uh, a really uh, stinky ass stew. Yeah, so once you got wind on that, you kind of just bailed out of the third I one. Did. I did. Uh, a friend and I, Russell Gannon, uh, a wonderful writer, we wrote number three. We, we collaborated on uh, on number three. I'm, lo- I'm looking out the window every now and then. A, a weird truck goes by and I haven't seen and they're kind of like, oh, well, what's that? Anyway, squirrel. <laughs> uh, so uh, so we uh, we collaborated, Russell and I, on number three. We wrote it. It was not what they wanted to go to uh, go with, obviously, because of the extensive specials. Uh, I'll give you a little teaser. It opens at the uh, at a uh, UN ball, a ball at the United Nations, and whereas there are no gargoyles on that building, in my United Nations there are, and of course they come to life and. Come crawling down the walls and uh, come into the party and rip it up. That's the first scene. So very much like in following uh, what what happened, uh, the first scene with the uh, Zoroaster and the king, uh, and then that sort of uh, that, that that group of, uh, of skeletons, that that sort of Harryhausen homage. That yeah. uh, I mean, oh, I absolutely love the fact that Robert is such a big fan of Harryhausen and of the stop motion, and and was perfectly willing to adapt. And use what at the time was very new CG. And uh, and for instance, when when I uh, when I go uh, when I freeze Kane Hodder into that glass door and bust through it, I mean that's uh, those are fairly simple ass angles of shards blowing through the air. Nevertheless, they give the idea of it, so it's you know it's passable. Um, of course, nowadays it would be you know uh, an air cannon full of this this plastic uh, glass looking stuff that would come through and, and shards uh, that would uh, you know would look like the real thing and then subsequent cuts on on the actors etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But the combination of the practical and uh, and the impractical uh, uh, sort of effects <laughs> was was absolutely wonderful. That that melding and that's where really the artistry of a of a of special effects masters like K and B comes in because mm-hmm. you know they were sitting around their own round table and deciding, well, how much do we push this? How much do we do that? And the fact that they were able to to keep so much practical effects as part of the story was was wonderful. How did you approach the gin prior to knowing the voice and such when you go in for the audition? What was your thinking going in? People have asked me whether I consider myself typecast because of the bad guys. This was another malevolent character, spirit. So I went in kind of uh, sort of looking up at the sky and and sort of not seeing the stars for the moon. So I, I kind of I was fixated on, on that and that connection with the uh, lead. Uh, and uh, came in the room and, uh, and did the reading and uh, left there thinking that they were totally unimpressed. Uh, and I do believe to this day that uh, were it not for Robert Kurtzman's input, uh, that it would have been somebody else in, in Jin's skin. 
And that would have been a huge mistake on their part. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You mentioned your non-acting hobbies earlier, and I wanted to circle back on them, that you uh, liked sculpting and painting. Was that something that happened early on? Did you fall into it later in life? So so it did happen early on. I, I remember one of the first things that I painted, I copied out of the uh, July... 1969 National Geographic, and that was that was this beautiful picture of the Chateau de Chillon with the uh, Les Dents du Midi, which is a ridge of mountains in the background, and, and uh, it literally means the midday teeth. Sort of, I guess, when the when the midday sun was up, you would look up and see this range of uh, of rock that literally looked like the lower jaw, like the teeth in the lower jaw. And in the background uh, was Montreux, where, where that uh, uh, smoke on the water. I was so enchanted by that that I had to read. The, the, the article about it referenced uh, The Prisoner of Chillon by Byron, so I had to read that poem. And it just, I don't know, for, for whatever reason, a kid of 16, it uh, I connected with it. And so I painted that, and I still have it. I mean, it's quite a beautiful piece, if I say so myself. And Maybe, maybe for a kid getting into the arts, as I think a lot of introverted kids would, would agree, was about building your own world where you might not be accepted in other worlds. Uh, and so building it, make whatever world you want. And I wanted castles and beautiful mountains and, and lakes and, and uh, reflections on the lake. And I made them and, uh, and then followed up shortly after with, with sculptures in, in uh, plaster. And I remember there was this one one little novel, I believe it was Fenimore Cooper who wrote it, and it was uh, a light in the forest. It was about uh, it was about a, a, a white kid who had been abducted by by Native Americans, Mohawks in this case, I believe, and uh, and sort of I did. Uh, and there was some illustrations in the thing, and I and I did one of the illustrations, and I I presented it to 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 a girl in high school that I had a major humongous uh, a crush on. And uh, she was quite impressed by by the piece, but not so much by me. Yeah, so so that that was about building my own world where I might not have access to the one I I thought I belonged in or thought I would want to to be. So, if you could go back in time and have a second crack at a role, maybe to try a different approach, just for the hell of it, what would it be? Gosh, you know what? And this is uh, this is utter hubris. There, really, it would be rather recent. And all it would be is is a comment I should have made on the set. <laughs> I won't go into it too much, other than to say it was uh, it was that. Uh, and and I, and I must say that the most brilliant point of the whole movie was getting to see Mr. Harrison Ford again, just being on the same set with him. What a what a beautiful spirit! I remember on uh, Air Force One. I remember walking past a group of, of extras, and I would be top bit in the morning, and I'd have coffee go by. They'd ask uh, uh, every now and then the groups would shift and change and rotate. And they'd ask, well, what, what should we be doing? Where, where should we? And, and I said, and, and at that moment, Mr. Ford walked on set and I said, if you're not paying attention to that guy, every time he walks on set, you're not learning. Um, Mr. Ford, so I would imagine that crew was about 175 people for Air Force One. He knew everyone's name. Wow, and uh, and would always walk by, and and if there were seven or eight people lined up, he would say, "Hey, how's how's the wife?" He knew the name of the wife, how the kids, and on his way to to do his thing. That was that was pretty pretty major. But um, subsequently, on on uh, on that uh, on that uh, Indiana Jones movie, I didn't get along very well, and I'll leave it at that. With uh, with Mr. Spielberg, he chased me off the set, off the set 
that included 500 actors. Wow. It was the, the Russian camp set. And I was, uh, I was called out. And I, I wish that at that moment I had had the sort of awareness to say what I would say in hindsight. And so, as we say, hindsight is twenty twenty, indeed. But, uh, you know, as far as, as, as any of the roles, nothing, nothing really. Uh, and, and not that I would have, I would have liked to have a, a communication with uh, Mr. S, but uh, he would have none of it. So there we are, and there it is. I'm cool with that. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, hey, listen, he's a, he's a brilliant guy, and he's, he, he's done brilliant work, obviously. Just that, uh, I don't know, we don't drink the same tea. Shit happens, as they say, you know? <laughs> right. So what's the best adding advice you've received throughout your career? You know, would have been from, from my teacher, Milton Katselas. I was lucky enough to study with him at the Skylight Theater on Vermont in, uh, in Hollywood. And it's, it's really, really very simple. And it, and it goes to what I had said before about being focused on one aspect of a character or, or of his nature or his persona. And it would simply be, and, and this was, uh, I, I can hear him saying it, whenever you see a yes, think about no. And likewise, whenever you, whenever you see a no, think about the yes of it. And that, that yes or that no can bring in humor. It can bring in unexpected drama. It can bring in a sort of a, a, a suspension uh, in, in the scene that you're watching at that moment and make you think along with the actor. That is really the most beautiful advice I uh, received from that wonderful gentleman. He, he directed a movie, incidentally, called Butterflies Are Free. And I believe that was Goldie Hawn's first, uh, first time out. And, and the movie was nominated. I believe Goldie was nominated as well. So have you seen any movies recently that have moved you, that have kind of stood out to you? You know, I, I, saw, I saw Belfast. I was on an airplane and, you know, flying, flying to the UK. And so it was particularly poignant, more than anything else. It, it just told me what a master and what a, what a wonderful creative being Kenneth Branagh is. To, to be able to put together and share this, these, these beautiful stories and then get get on the get in a taxi and, and go to the next thing that he's doing. I mean, the guy amazes me. And I was totally blown away by the actors and, and, and the story. And I think it affects all of us. It affected me, of course, uh, in the shadow of what's going on in Ukraine. So that, that whole thing that's that's so heartbreaking and, and so Orwellian at the same time, this, this, the truth is a lie. And the lie is the truth. Mm, yeah. And here is how we're going to explain it to you. And and we are, and I'm speaking about the Russians and, and the, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the ilk over there, the group that somehow finds themselves the, the, the shamelessness to say things like, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing, we will provide some of the water that will help put out the fire we started. I mean, that is some sick-ass shit. Agreed. Fact that, uh, the fact that it, uh, it gets sort of uh, covered up with all of this Orwellian fucking gobbledygook. As you can tell, it, uh, other than that, I have no opinion. <laughs> well, you've, you've talked about, of course, your, your fantastic brewery and the wonderful, wonderful beer you create, your jelly beans and your milkshakes. But what I would like to know is what is your go-to movie snack? What's that one thing that you like to munch on that makes your movie-watching experience just a total sensory heaven it you know i have i have a few and i must tell you i am when they come on and i'm ready to go do something i i become paralyzed one of those movies is and it's it's so from a kid uh, i've told you my background so from a kid who grew up appreciating and admiring the quiet american hero the movie that that for me just is all that 
is the natural. Robert Redford's the natural. And I just, anytime that is on, I stop everything and I watch. Now I know I could hit the little button and I'd have a recording for later, but no, I want to do this now. And it doesn't matter if three quarters of the movie are gone, I always tune in. And then the other one that that is an absolute uh, candy for me, that I absolutely enjoy and I always think about my friend Walter Hill, is Hard Times. Uh, with Charles Bronson. I mentioned I drove a limousine. I was lucky enough to to pick Mr. Bronson up at uh, at the airport, and uh, and at that time uh, his uh, his wife uh, Jill Ireland, if I remember correctly. Um, and I remember it was so wonderful waiting there at the curb for him and having the cops come up and say, "Hey, you can't park there, man. You got to keep moving." I said, "I'm waiting for Charles Bronson." Guy goes, "Oh yeah, yeah." He goes, oh, "Okay, you're good. You're good, man. You stay right there." <laughs> So, so, uh, and of course they would, all of a sudden, all the cops are kind of like really close to the limo, like doing their, doing their job. Right. But, mm-hmm. but wanting to see Charles Bronson come out of the, you know, baggage claim. And so I mean, sure enough, wouldn't? he came out. <laughs> Beg pardon? Who yeah. Wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Right. And so, uh, so here comes, uh, here comes Jill Ireland and here comes, uh, uh, Mr. Bronson. And I, uh, I kind of and I looked at Mr. Bronson briefly, and I, I nodded and 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 acknowledged him and, and smiled, and uh, and he didn't smile so much. And and the thing that he was waiting for, he wasn't being a badass or anything. He was waiting for something that I would have done naturally anyway. And as I saw Miss Ireland approach the car, I grabbed the door and I opened it for her. I made sure I took her bag and so forth. And then I looked over, just happened to look over at him. He had this biggest smile on his face. That that's what it was all about for him. But uh, hard times, baby, hard times. And and that that scene where, where uh, some, something happens, the, the fights happened and, and, and the, uh, the promoter of the fight uh, looks at his big boy and I mean, dude had to be 18 feet tall. He looks at him and says, uh, you want to go again? And the guy I just bows his head and says, fuck, no, man. Um, but Charles was wonderful. One of the things that, that he told me about about Mr. Bronson and, and doing the fight, Mr. Bronson was a, was a chain smoker. And so he'd be in the ring and he'd throw his punches and he'd do his thing. And then, you know, he could do three minutes of, of, of work and then he'd have to lean up against the, the ropes and take his oh, breaths, wow. right? So, uh, so 53 years old he was when he did that movie. So those are my two kind of, uh, well, there is a third. There is a third. Man, man who would be king. I was lucky enough. Uh, Michael Caine was one of my sort of clients, limousine clients, and he was a he was a wonderful. He was a gentleman. I saw him. I saw him at uh, at a party down at uh, oh what was that uh, space? And it was a club on Rodeo. It was a place on Rodeo, and and he was there with his agent Swifty Lazar, and had not won the Oscar that night, but was partying down. And I I went in to tell uh, Mr. Caine. I said, you know, if you like, there's a big crowd out front. And if you like, I can meet you around the back. I've spoken with the kitchen. I can walk you through the kitchen and take you to the car. And he said, no, Andrew, tonight we're going out the front. And and that was so damn wonderful, man, because he did, and he signed all the autographs. And I mean, uh, it was just absolutely wonderful. Another thing um, I, will, I will tell you is that uh, I remember coming from his home. We were going into Beverly Hills and crossing Santa Monica. And I kid you not, in the crosswalks, crossing is Sean Connery. <laughs> And, and and Michael Caine says to me, he says, stop right here. And and literally, I'm blocking traffic now. Michael Caine gets out. He he goes, and you can tell people are getting antsy. They're about to honk, but then they realize, oh, fuck. That's Sean Connery, and that's Michael Caine. And they're saying hi to each other in a crosswalks uh, at the at the uh, at the entrance to, to Rodeo Drive to Beverly Hills. Nobody, you couldn't hear a horn. Everybody is clicking at that time that no no uh, no phones no phone cameras it was you know pull out the 
the uh, disposable and all these pictures being taken. And they and they greeted each other, gave big hugs. And Mr. Kane got back in. I, I closed the door for him, and that, that was I was like looking around, going, "That's right, that's right." <laughs> what a story, jeez! It, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Man. Now, what do you like to what do you like to eat when you're watching a movie? Are you a popcorn guy? Are you a candy guy? You know, I uh, I love my cashews. I love my cashews, and I found uh, I've recently found a chocolate covered cashew. Uh, it's called Drizzle, and so I kind of uh, I really really uh, well, I like my cashews, and I'm having to be I uh, sort of uh, aware of uh, blood spikes that kind of thing now. So, uh, so I'm careful with it. I kind of, I guess, I kind of save my sugar for for tasting the latest beer. Uh, and did I mention, by the way? Did I mention? Did I did I mention about the the this robust is the first I've heard of it. This is the first, right? So let me tell you a little about it. Uh, toasted coconut, raisins steeped in rum, and a beautiful smooth finish. Excuse me for a quick second. Well, you're in a brewery. That's right. <laughs> and, and truth is. Uh, truth, truth be told, and, and this is the truth. I have never drunk less beer than uh, than now owning a brewery. You haven't told us the name of the brewery. You told oh, it's, us where it's, it's at. called. Let me uh, one sec. Let me uh, let me kind of show you around real quick. Uh, okay. Come come this way. So this is a this is a bar. Now this uh, this wood here is uh, is uh, reclaimed from my my fence line. This is uh, this is redwood uh, dog eared uh, dog eared redwood that was on my fence line. And these are uh, Native American symbolism that are indigenous to this area. Let me show you what that bar does. It'll look like it's taking off. So you can see uh, the name of the brewery is Three Marm Brewing Company. And I have my Roman numerals in logs, three. And uh, what, uh, what is the silhouette of an M? Now this right here is a marm. A marm is the crotch in a tree where it splits off into other trunks. And so uh, this is a three marm. You can see the three sort of trunks coming off the main trunk, and that forms the M. So three M. And then uh, got some of my my glassware. We've got some new uh, got some new merch in here. T-shirts. Be happy to send you guys some. Give me some sizes. Just got this unit in here. This is a keg washer, beautifully made up in Canada. The only thing is when we were ready to give it a dry run, it, it, it showed up with a Canadian plug. This is the American plug. So we had to, uh, we had to abort that mission, but we're uh, tomorrow, as of tomorrow, we'll be doing a dry run. And then back in here, can you see these fermenters? Yeah, these, these yeah. Giants here. These are seven-barrel fermenters, so they can ferment about uh, 250 to 275 gallons of beer. This is my uh, this is my hot tank, uh-huh. and uh, this guy right here. This is a 10-barrel mash tun. This is where the oatmeal is made, and then the juice is transferred onto this hot tank. From here, once all of the adjuncts are in, we use a transfer pump and send it over to one of these uh, one of these fermenters. We've just pulled that robusto. That uh, did I mention how, how how wonderful it was? By the way, <laughs> yes, I did right. <laughs> and then uh, you can see in there that's my Alibaba's cave. And you see the the kegs and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool, cool. I'll walk you around to the to the kitchen. Very proud of the kitchen. It's uh, it's minimal, but absolutely uh, got what you absolutely need. useful. And then onward, uh, we come back and, uh, you know, you don't often hear bad guys talking about how much they love their bathrooms. But uh, <laughs> this is, uh, I'm just so stoked with the way this came out. This is all ceramic tile that was printed on. All of this uh, sort of old barn look was actually printed on there. And so we uh, we like to keep it rustic. And so we've uh, we've got a kind of an old style. This is uh, Touch Tunes, reached out to by BMI. 
uh, broadcast music international so i paid them their fee and now i'm okay to uh, to listen to all sorts of music and uh, guys can you see ryan here yes, yes yes that is the gentleman can you see the qr code yes we can see the code can you excerpt that and perhaps uh, help uh, ryan's cause please scan this For qr code sure. to give what you can and uh, uh, 25 cents every every single penny helps ryan is a beautiful dude we are totally at uh, opposing ends of the political spectrum but uh, i love this guy he uh so he asked for number 314 he is a physicist by by trade and uh and came meekly up to me sometime afterward and said do you think if i gave you my tag back do you think you could make it 3.14 and i said absolutely brother <laughs> pie so he's got uh, he's got 3.14 and that is the uh, QR code to scan, if you would, please, and, uh, and, and give what you can. And just give them a shout out. Say hi, please. Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. Well, hell, that's uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> that's kind of it. Gorgeous. It's yeah, gorgeous. I can't wait I, uh, to come out to California. <laughs> oh, you've got to come out. So now my, my, my chore, my duty is you'll see I have, my, uh, have my wall up here with all of my flavors. And they're quite catchy. Uh, you'll see here, uh, Tickle Me Tucky, Golden State Ale, uh, All Goddamn Day IPA, uh, the POG, uh, uh, Passion Fruit Orange Guava Heart Seltzer, and we come over uh, over here to the uh, I Love Juicy Hazy Cowboy Imperial IPA, Goblin Belgian Blonde, which is absolutely delicious. I, I, I may mention that if we ever speak again, it's today. Okay, so beer is my beer is excellent. Uh, Agent Orange, which is a wonderful IPA, actually infused with real orange pulp and it's it's like uh it's it's kind of too delicious and then uh buster's brown ale so we've got uh, quite a quite a bit of cool stuff let me just share this with you leave you with this so the golden state ale basically i i this is this is my artwork my design and i i, I just after paying my first excise tax here in california uh, I was pissed off, so basically I, I sort of translated that into the bear on the flag ripping his ass off it and stepping up and tearing the, the California tax code in half. So that's my Golden State Ale, and this is my I Love Juicy, and you remember that episode where she's trying to, uh, uh, you know, keep pace with the chocolates, uh -huh. but, but now she's trying to keep pace with the bottles and not doing so good. A little bit of an homage there to, uh, to Lucy, to Lucille, and then uh, got my Patchkin Pumpkin Ale. We keep this on all year round. It helps support our causes. And that uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, that is actually uh, Mikhail Patchy from uh, from Lost. With uh, I borrowed Jason's uh, sort of uh, machete. I have a pumpkin on my head, and the pumpkin has a patch over its eye. So uh, a long explanation. Anyway, it's <laughs> you're going to love it. But listen, guys, thank you so much for, uh, for making the time and for having the interest. And uh, I look forward to seeing you up here so I can pour you one of those beers. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Are, are quite excellent. Thank you so much, sir. <laughs> oh, you're the best. <laughs> thank you both for your time and, uh, and for uh, spreading the word. Much appreciated. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? 
The sacred Night Demon Crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.